0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Rev. Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's been a while since I posted my last podcast, but I finally found some time. And what you're about to hear is a talk I gave at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California. My friend Terry Andrews asked if I would speak to his class, and this is my talk, basically on morality. So if you're curious about Buddhist morality, here it is, my talk at Chadwick School in Paulus Verdes, California. So Buddhism, more than anything else, is a system of morality. I'll just tie it right in. You know, uh, the idea is we'll suffer less if we are more moral, and we'll suffer more if we become immoral. Now, you've pro- if you're a Christian, you probably already heard that, and you know something about the Ten Commandments, and maybe that even Charlton Heston played Moses. But um, in Buddhism, we took a different approach to morality. Hi. Sorry so Buddhism took a different approach to morality Um, we do not have a divine being in our cosmology now did everybody know that about Buddhism that Buddhism is godless and so what would we call Buddhists if we don't have a divine being in our cosmology would you call them atheistic Agnostic. this is a tough one well we call ourselves non-theistic non-theistic exactly so now did the Buddha believe in God anybody have any idea what do you think uh, the Buddha didn't mention uh, his, uh, like what he said like he didn't mention that like, you have to worship God but if a person did it like it was out of his own choice mhm so, okay. Exactly. And the Buddha himself believed in God. They had a lot of gods uh, back then. It was a hierarchy of gods. Uh, The biggest god, the best god, the strongest god was called Brahma or Brahma. That was creator god. And then there was subcategories of other gods. And the Buddha came to a place in his life where he was faced with a dilemma. He found one thing that God couldn't do. He found one thing that God couldn't do. What do you think that was? Anybody have any ideas? The one thing that God can't do is end suffering. suffering. You read the book. Cool. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That he saw humans suffering in all these many ways. And I think that maybe one day he just petitioned his gods in prayer saying, please, you've created the world, you've created the crops, you've given us rain when we've needed it, and and heat when we needed it, and can't you end human suffering? And none of the gods stepped forward and said, I will. So he made a vow to himself to find out why humans suffer and how to end that suffering. And at the age of 29... After his first child was born to his wife, he left them in the care of his parents who were the king and queen of the province, went to the edge of the forest, took off all his clothes, cut off all his hair, threw away all his, his jewelry and picked up these dirty old rags and covered his naked body and he became an ascetic, he became a beggar, he became a mendicant and he was trying to figure out where suffering came from so he wanted to get rid of everything that made him comfortable. So if you look at your life and say, okay, what makes me comfortable? That's what he would get rid of. So if your iPod makes your day a little better, he'd get rid of his iPod. If his really cool shoes made his day a little better, he'd get rid of his shoes. So ultimately he had to get rid of everything, even his bed and his chair, his hair and his clothes. All that stuff made him comfortable. And now he became this person seeking to suffer. And he suffered greatly. And there's stories about all the suffering he went through. And he would try this to end the suffering, and he would try this to end the suffering, and none of that stuff worked. And he would ask his teachers how to end the suffering, and they would give him these skills and, and practices to do religious training, and none of that ended suffering either. So at the end of six years, he was at the at the end of his rope, if you will. He said, I don't know. I can't figure it out. I can't end the suffering. I've created it. I see it clearly. I see every human being has to suffer, but I don't know how to end it. And it said he sat beneath this tree, which later became called the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. And he said, I'm going to sit here and end my suffering, or I'm going to die. One of the two. I'll succeed or I'll fail. But I'm going to sit here until one of those happens. And it said, according to the Theravada tradition of Sri Lanka, seven days later, he became the only perfect human being in the world. He became the Buddha. Anybody know what the Buddha, word Buddha means? Yes, really close, but not exactly correct. The word Buddha? Anybody see Matrix? Anybody see Neo in the Matrix? What did Neo do? He. Well, Neo woke up. They unplugged him. He became awake, and Morpheus took him around and showed him the things he couldn't see before because he was sleeping. The Buddha woke up. The word Buddha means one who is awake. And because we're all human beings, we can wake up as well. We can wake up out of the matrix and join Neo on the Ebikenezer. Okay. But a lot of us don't want to wake up. You know, have you ever had some really good dreams and the the alarm goes off and school's about to start and you say, I'm just going to take 10 more minutes. This dream is too good to leave. And and that's sort of how our life is. Our life is good enough not to want to wake up. That, That we don't know if waking up's going to be better or worse. And in The Matrix, remember that one guy who woke up? and then decided he wanted to go back to sleep, and so he was having that that dinner conversation, even though the steak he was eating really didn't exist, it looked like it did, and he was happy again, because he could fantasize and pretend life was different than it was. So is it really good to wake up? Well, the Buddha posed this question. Are you happy with suffering? And if you're okay with your suffering, then there's no need to wake up you don't ever need to hear about Buddhism. But if one day, your suffering is so strong and debilitating that you can't even go out into the world anymore because you see the world is aflame with pain and suffering, that what the Buddha had to say is your medication. It's the pill you need to take, the red one or the blue one. And and by... Taking on Buddhist practice, you will ultimately end your suffering, but you will not end your pain, which I think is an interesting difference. So, can anybody give me a definition of pain? And can anybody give me a definition of suffering? And are they the same or are they different? What do you think? Well, I think pain, myself, is a really uncomfortable, strong sensation. It's just a really, really, really strong sensation. You go, oh! And then we label it pain, and pain becomes a problem. And we know what pain is telling us, don't we? We know pain is telling us if we don't get rid of the pain, we will die. Because pain is the signal that death is about to happen. So where we, there we are, sitting on the floor in the Zendo meditating and our leg starts to tingle because the blood stopped and it becomes really painful and the mind jumps into action and says, Kusla, that's gangrene, it's setting in you'll never walk again, call 911 and I jump into action and I shake my leg and get the blood circulating again and it's okay, so I guess I'm not going to die this time but it was a close (laughs) one And, and so this is suffering now suffering is different than the pain Pain is a really strong sensation. And the best definition of suffering I've heard came from a 7th grader in Glendale, California. Her name was Esmeralda. And at the end of my presentation to her history class, she said, Reverend Kusla, I know the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. So suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. Has anybody had a perfect day and it was just the way it was supposed to be? Or was there always these hair issues? (laughs) Or maybe lunch wasn't as good and tasty as it should be? Or just something comes up and ruins that perfect day all the time, and you say to yourself, if only that hadn't have happened, I would be having a perfect day right now. And so, as a human, we try to hold on to all the good stuff and push away all the bad stuff to make every day a perfect day, and we fail miserably. And not because we're bad, or not because we have original sin, not because of that at all, but because we're born with original ignorance, and we can't see reality the way it really is. We haven't woken up yet. So, Buddhism is about the process of waking up to reality exactly as it is, and having a profound acceptance or equanimity or balance with what you start to see. Because if you wake up too early and you see the world the way it really is, it may bum you out. (laughs) And you may say to yourself, but why does it have to be that way? Everybody said the world is perfect and I see people starving over here. I see people taking corn and making gasoline when people are starving over here because they would rather drive their car than eat. I'm sorry. You know my opinion on this, I bet. And I'm going, whoa. Oh, how about the bad water that people can't drink and they don't have adequate filtration systems to make it pure enough not to make them sick? How about all the things that are wrong with this world? There has never been a time in this world when we haven't had a war. And there is a website online that will show you every day how many wars are going on. And it's never just one. There are sometimes 20, 30, 40 wars every day going on around the globe. Why can't people get along? What is wrong? And what seems to be wrong is our mind. Our mind always wants to separate, critique, criticize. It just doesn't stop talking to us every day. It's just rattling on. That little voice in the back of your head saying, Hey, good day. Hey, bad day. Hey, great lunch. Hey, bad lunch. It doesn't stop. So meditation is sort of designed to get us to leave our mind and come to our senses in a very special way so morality how do we base what we do on do we we base it on God well no because God is optional in Buddhism if you're a Buddhist you can have God it's okay we don't say anything about that if you're a Buddhist you cannot believe in God at all and that's okay we don't say anything about that if you're a Buddhist and you don't know anything about God that's okay we don't care we want you to end your suffering If you want to find out about God, you have to go to a church, or a mosque, or a temple. Everybody in the world will tell you about God, except for the Buddhists. The Buddhists will tell you about Siddhartha, who found the answer to human suffering, and for 45 years taught the path to the end of human suffering. The Buddha will tell you that we do not base our morality on God and the commandments. Or even what God says, we base our morality on karma, cause, and consequence. We feel if we're a skillful human being, we will suffer less. If we are an unskillful human being, we will suffer more. Now, some people think there is evil in the world. Some people think there is ultimate good in the world. As a Buddhist, we don't. As a Buddhist, we see that some people have taken the word good and gotten rid of an O. And they consider that to be ultimate good. And we see some people who see evil in the world took that word evil and put a D in front of it. And you go, whoa. And a Buddhist would say, yeah, there is good in the world. And there is unskillful activity in the world. But there's no devil and there's no God. And a lot of people go, I don't know if I can handle that. Because how do you decide what you're doing is okay or not? And the Buddha would say, well, we have five precepts. We have five rules that we follow. But they're training rules. They're not commandments. They are training rules to make you more skillful. They are practice rules. The first rule is, I will practice not taking life. So as a Buddhist, you accept that training precept not to take life. So how much life has anybody taken today? Anybody killed anything today? Well, maybe not that you know of, but I bet most of us have killed something today already, and the day's still young. And we're going to go out and kill some more, because that's what humans do. A few years ago, I took my motorcycle and rode to Wisconsin and back on my motorcycle, and my windshield became the killing fields. (laughs) every color of insect imaginable was stuck to my windshield. And I felt bad because I didn't intend to do that. But simply moving through the world, you are bound to kill or make something feel pretty uncomfortable. So as a Buddhist, we say, okay, I'm going to start not killing and I'm going to start at the top. I'm going to say to myself, today I'm not killing any human beings. And I'm going to walk out that door with confidence, thinking that I, I'm not going to take anybody out today. And I'm successful. It worked. Okay. So after that, I get make it a little bit harder. I say, today, I'm not going to kill any lions or tigers or bears. Oh, my. And I go through the whole day. And you know, I haven't seen one lion, tiger, or bear in Koreatown yet. So it's pretty easy not to kill him. I did see, though, two nights ago, a raccoon. First raccoon, Koreatown. I mean, Staples Center is just a few blocks away. It's cement. And there is this full-grown raccoon crossing the ground. I'm going, wow, where did you come from? How cruel is that? We have a raccoon in Koreatown. <laughs> then, as I get more skillful, I say, today I'm not killing any flies, mosquitoes, ants, or cockroaches. How difficult is that? You walk into your kitchen, you have 10,000 ants on the sink. And you say, oh no, I'm practicing not to kill. How am I going to get rid of these 10,000 ants? And that's the Buddhist dilemma. When you've chosen not to kill, is there another choice you can make? Is there another choice you can make? And there is. It just requires a bit more attention and a bit more time to the problem. Because killing the ants might take you all of two minutes. You spray them and wipe them and throw them away. Cool. But now you've decided not to kill them. So you get this piece of cardboard and you put them on the card, you take them outside and then you go back and get some more, and they just keep coming and coming, then you might want to get some of this Chinese chalk to sort of make a boundary, and they're not supposed to go over the Chinese chalk, and so you do that, and now you've got them all over here, and you, scoot, and, you know. and so about two hours later, you've <laughs> solved the problem. But you didn't kill anything, and that means you're practicing the first precept. So as a Buddhist, we practice a whole lot. Our religion is just our practice. Now, the next precept is, I will not take what is not given. Well, it's, not, it's more than not stealing. I will take what is not given. That means if you walk into a Denny's and there's a ketchup on the counter, you can't use it until it's offered to you. So you say, oh, waitress, is it okay if I use the ketchup? She goes, what's wrong with you? That's why it's there. Oh, but I'm practicing not taking what is not given, and you didn't give me permission to use it. She says, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And you say, well, I'm a meditator. I'm a Buddhist. And she says, what's wrong with you? So not taking what is not given is so difficult because what happens if there's a pencil on the table and you need the pencil and the class is over and you know they're never coming back for the pencil but you're practicing not taking what is not given you can't even take that pencil and use it without permission. It's all about stuff. Has anybody seen the story of stuff? Well, if I can make a recommendation to you, I have just bought a new domain name. It is called DharmaTube. Sort of like YouTube for the Dharma. These are videos. And one of the videos I have on DharmaTube is called The Story of Stuff. And if you get a chance to watch that, you'll be surprised at where all this stuff comes from and, and how many people are involved in making this stuff and how many people how many countries we are destroying so we can have more and more stuff all the time. So it's called The Story of Stuff on Dharma Tube. It's very cool. There's also something I just put on Dharma Tube called The Matrix. (laughs) Sort of like The Matrix, but The Matrix. And it's about Mufius, not Morpheus, and the problem of killing animals to eat. So if none of you are vegetarians, you probably don't want to watch it. But if you're thinking about maybe being a vegetarian, there's a lot of really useful information in just three minutes. And it's good animation, too. Okay, do not take what is not given. We all think we own stuff because we have receipts. We go and buy something to give us a receipt. So we own it. We take it home. We own it. And now we clean it. We care for it. We might even protect it. We might even buy a storage locker to store it when we're not using it. Okay, or if you have a mandolin, you might buy a case to put your stuff in the case so the stuff is nice when you take it out of the case. But we don't own anything. As a Buddhist, we feel we do not own anything. We just use the stuff we think we own. And the problem is attachment to the stuff we think we own. Because attachment creates desire. Desire creates suffering. And sometimes the stuff is stolen. Sometimes we can't find the stuff and we suffer and sometimes we take stuff without an invitation, and we create suffering for other people so our job as a Buddhist to follow that second precept is not to take what is not given not to take other people's stuff that they think their own that they're just using Okay. now let me tell you a true story about my stuff that when I moved into the meditation center and when I decided to become a monk I said I'm giving up all my stuff because that's what monks do monks don't have any stuff So I had 500 blues vinyl albums. Some of the best blues guys you have ever listened to. Took them to a used record store. Sold them for a buck apiece. Broke my heart. But I'm going to be a monk. I'm not supposed to have anything. Electric guitar, banjo, keyboards. Sold them. Kept selling all my stuff. I moved into the meditation center. Gosh, one room wasn't even full. I had gotten rid of most of my stuff. That was a while ago. That was 1993. My room is packed. I have a mandolin. I have a guitar. I have 20 harmonicas. I don't have vinyl albums anymore. I have MP3s. (laughs) Whoa. What happened? I gave it all away. What didn't I plan for? I made a big mistake renunciation isn't about giving up your stuff renunciation is about giving up your wants for the stuff I gave up my stuff, I didn't give up my wants and years later the stuff materialized again there it was Whoa, a famous Zen master said Buddhism is about giving everything up Buddhism is about understanding everything will be taken away from you sooner or later And the culprit is impermanence and change. Everything goes away sooner or later. So the next time you see stuff, people think they own that stuff. So ask permission. Third precept I will trap, I will practice not having unskillful sex. Whoa. So what does that mean, you know? Sexual misconduct what is sexual misconduct in 2008? what is sexual misconduct in Southern California? isn't everything okay? it seems like it to me because when I was in high school nothing was okay <laughs> you know and guilt was just everywhere so I went and found a book called A Noble Eightfold Path written by Bikku Bodhi a very famous American Buddhist monk, and this is what he said the Buddha said in his book, The Noble Eightfold Path, which is on my website for free download if you like. He said, there are four things the Buddha told lay people, that's everybody who's not ordained, about sex. He said, do not have sex with people who are married. It causes a lot of suffering. Do not have sex with people who are engaged. It causes a lot of suffering. Do not have sex with children. It causes a lot of suffering. And do not have sex with people against their will. It causes a lot of suffering. That's it. So, as a Buddhist, we're asked to live by those four standards. And I think if you reflect on those four standards, it's probably possible to go through your whole sexual life and not go there. You know? Now, the big question is is it okay to be gay if you're a Buddhist? Every high school I go to has this question for some reason Is it okay to be gay if you're a Buddhist? And you know what my answer is? It's just another way to suffer, but there's nothing wrong with it, according to Buddhism. So gay people suffer, heterosexual people suffer, people who are practicing celibacy suffer, everybody suffers. Why? What's wrong with sex? Nothing at all. Sex is wonderful. That's why we're all here. The problem with sex, according to Buddhism, is the desire for sex, because that desire will never, ever be satisfied. You can have sex 1,000 times in 2,000 different ways and you'll still want more. (laughs) That desire is like hunger. You say to yourself, I'm going to have the biggest meal I've ever eaten so I can end my hunger forever. And you sit down to this giant meal. (laughs) Five hours later, you're ready for dessert. (laughs) The hunger is still there. Sex works the same way. So we encourage people to have sex, but we encourage people to have sex in that way. Now, I'm a Buddhist monk, so I don't have sex. I've chosen a vow of celibacy. Now I was giving a talk at Peninsula High School a couple weeks ago, and I asked the class, well, why do you think Buddhist monks are celibate? And one of the female students raised her hand and said, so you guys don't get STDs? (laughs) Well, that may be one of the reasons. I don't know if the Buddha thought about that, though. (laughs) But the main two reasons why Buddhist monks are celibate is, number one, we need to have a simple lifestyle because we live in an economy of generosity people give us donations and if we have a huge lifestyle like with a family and children and mortgages and car payments we're gonna need an awful lot of donations to maintain that lifestyle so it doesn't work so if you become a Buddhist monk you've told you gotta live simply because people will be supporting you and it's hard to support one human being let alone a whole family but the second and most important reason Buddhist monks and nuns are celebrate is this because we want to be free. Free. Now, if you are in relationship, if you love that person you're with, you will be satisfied, you will be fulfilled, you will be happy, but you will not be free. Most people don't want to be free. Most people prefer the prison of relationship. And I have to say, okay, cool. Now, that same student at Paulus Verde's Peninsula High School said, but aren't you missing out on a lot of stuff, Kusla? You're getting old now and you don't have a wife and you don't have children to talk to. And, and don't you miss not having a family and I said to her, well, you know, as a Buddhist, I feel this is not my first lifetime. So maybe in a lot of my previous lifetimes, I've been a father, I've been a mother, I've been a grandmother, I've been a grandfather, I've been an aunt, I've been, I've been all of those things. And maybe in this lifetime, I just wanted to try something different. Just to see if I could get free in one lifetime. Maybe it won't work, maybe next lifetime, or maybe even in this lifetime. I'll find that perfect person. You know? And one of the reasons American monks and nuns give back their ordination is because they found that perfect person. And they leave Buddhist clergy to become a householder. And then they have two jobs, and car payments, and mortgages, and eventually college tuition they have to pay for. And they're really happy. And I'm going, cool. (laughs) So, number four on the top five list of things we're training on. We train ourselves not to tell lies. Now, you've heard that before. But we also have unskillful speech, so it's more than lies. The Buddha said, don't speak in a harsh way, don't speak in a malicious way, don't speak in a false way, and don't get involved in idle chatter or gossip, because that will create suffering. What is the problem with lying to people? The problem with lying to people is this. You will undermine their reality. They won't know what is true and what is untrue. As an example, think about the Iraq War. How many people have told us the truth about the Iraq War? Everybody. So what is the truth? I don't know if you lie to someone they're going to say I don't know what's true either you're undermining their reality so as a Buddhist we try not to be unskillful in our speech and sometimes it's difficult there's a friend of mine at the meditation center her name is Mary she's a wonderful person and one day she said well how do I look Kusla, in my new outfit and you know I said fine wonderful Mary Now, it's not what I would have chosen for her to wear, but she's not me, I'm not her. So how about the truth? Can you handle the truth? (laughs) I didn't want Mary to handle the truth. I wanted to support her. I wanted her to have a good day because of what she was wearing and how she looked. So, sometimes kindness is more important than the truth. Sometimes kindness is more important. Last but not least, number five on the top moral things to do and not do, I will accept the training precept not to consume intoxicants. I will not get drunk or high. Whoa, that's no fun. Humans have been getting drunk or high since they've been humans. They had something in India called Soma, a magic elixir that made you hallucinate, just like Tim Leary on LSD, and you got to see the whole world in a really radical new way. What is wrong with getting wasted? I said to my teacher. He said, well, the problem in Buddhism is that you become a really stupid person. (laughs) And you do dumb things, and you create a whole lot of suffering for yourself and everybody else. So there's nothing wrong with drinking once in a while. They say wine and beer is actually good for you. The problem is you could lose your wisdom. Now, when I took that precept, I changed it for myself because I realized I couldn't, in the beginning of my Buddhist practice, not have a beer. And when I went to the Mexican restaurant and I had that burrito and the salsa and the chips and that cold beer, my life was good. I wasn't giving that up for enlightenment. <laughs> But after a couple years, I realized that, you know, maybe a 7-Up or a Coke would be okay. That I didn't even need that beer anymore. So it was a gradual understanding, a gradual deepening of my wisdom that led me to finally accept the training precept in the way it was written and not the way I wanted it to be. So if you're going to practice those precepts, you might say to yourself, okay, I'm not going to kill humans, but I will kill uh, mosquitoes and ants and cockroaches because I hate them. And that would be okay. And then as you keep practicing your Buddhist path, you start to have more compassion and more wisdom. And then you look at those little cockroaches and you see they just want to live too. They're part of this creation that I'm in. And the only problem with the cockroaches is it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's in your place and it's your time. So maybe you can keep the kitchen a little cleaner or, or, you know... uh, put the trash outside more often or whatever it is that brings them in just to keep them out so that's how I looked at it so moral training in Buddhism is really important it's the foundation of Buddhism but we don't listen to a divine lawgiver telling us what is right and wrong we look at karma and we see the consequence of the karma the cause and effect of what we think what we say and what we do that is also, also how a Buddhist goes to heaven we do go to heaven. I, I, and, and, uh, but we don't go to Christian heaven or Jewish heaven or Muslim heaven or Hindu heaven. We go to Buddhist heaven. We have 31 heavens and 31 hells. We have so many places to go. But we go there not because of what we believe, not because of faith, not because of grace. We go there because of our karma, what we think, say, and do. So if we're skillful, If we reduce suffering in the world, heaven's our goal, but our ultimate goal is always nirvana. That's where Buddhist really wants to go. So after hearing those five precepts, any questions? Any comments? Yes? I have two questions. One, how does desire and drinking, etc., actually lead to suffering? Um, I think you said, I just want to make sure it's clear, desire leads because you'll never be satisfied. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons. But go ahead. Um, But could not one person get a satisfaction for a time and then go back to still having the desire? And does it believe that the the suffering outweighs the the brief satisfaction that one would get? I would say ultimately it does. But uh, I think uh, at your age, the pleasure is better than the suffering. <laughs> that you know and 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 that 's how I found it that when I was younger, uh, it was really a fun world to live in. I was having a good time, you know, and, and even the bad times weren 't that bad because the good times were really good, and so that made up for it. But then I turned thirty and then I turned forty and then I turned fifty. And geez, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're stiff and your legs hurt and you and you want to go back to sleep and you got stuff to do and the cat wants to be fed and you don't want to feed the cat but you do anyway and and you just sort of you know and you say, Well what happened to that that young guy who was having such a great time? Where did he go? Well he died a long time ago. Now there's this old guy who's <laughs> trying not to suffer too much, you know. And and it's like, yeah, okay, so Buddhism really is, for, uh, is designed for a person to, to reflect on their life and if there is more suffering than pleasure, Buddhism could be an answer. You know? um, if there's more pleasure than suffering, it's okay. You don't need to even talk to me. Now, I'm, I'm scheduled to do a wedding at the end of this month. Do you think I'm going to talk about suffering at the wedding? <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to do the service, I'm going to eat the cake and go home. Because they're happy. I'm not going to ruin it for them. I'm not going to tell them all the stuff I told you. And, and, and so, but then somebody comes, you know, to the, to the meditation center and says, I'm getting divorced. And I love her, but I can't live with her. There, and we have kids. And what am I going to do? Da, da, da. Hey, Buddhism, <laughs> suffering, life sucks. You know, and, and so you're absolutely right. At moments uh, of life are sometimes better than the downside. But when the downside becomes the only side, uh, Buddhism really works well. I question: How does uh, the like individual sufferings of the world reflect the total suffering, and sort of the generalization of the whole world is suffering? Okay. Is, and I, like, um, like is, is the world considered like one big, I guess, organism where one part's hurting, the whole thing is essentially? Yeah, now that's, that is really a good question. And um, Okay, so we have this world that we live in, and the Buddha said the, this world is on fire. It will burn you every time. So we look at the world, this earth, as being ultimately unsatisfactory. No matter what you do or how you do it, you'll never make this place perfect. Because we call this place samsara. Samsara means birth and death that this place is where birth and death occur. So, what did the Buddha say about birth and death? He said, birth sucks. We're born, we got to get old, we got to get sick, and we got to die. If we weren't born, we wouldn't have to get old, we wouldn't have to get sick, we wouldn't have to die. Even Christ died. The Son of God. What's that say about us? You know? And most people die in miserable ways. It's not pleasant going to sleep, having a dream. You know, or 405 freeway, their body parts are all over. You just go, man, this is tough. Sickness, everybody gets sick. All the time, every day. I've stopped cleaning my room. I was told a dirty room builds a good immune system. <laughs> Try using that at home, see if it works. <laughs> So it's like, okay, now I'm born, I'm going to have to get sick, I'm going to have to die, and I'm going to have to get old if I live long enough. Have you ever met a bunch of happy old people? They're always complaining. They can't taste the food, they can't hear anybody talking. Now they've got trifocals, bifocals, they don't have any hair left, their body looks like something that came out of a monster film. (laughs) And you're looking at this going, this is wonderful, this is what life's all about, and I'm going, wow, and that's ahead for all of us, I see old people stumbling around, and I think to myself, one day that's going to be me, that's no fun, and yet we can't be young forever, we keep every day getting older and older and older. So the Buddha really painted a realistic picture, if you call it that, or a bleak picture, if you're a little bit more optimistic. But he didn't say it was always bad. He didn't say there was. there's some wonderful moments in every day and in each lifetime that make it worth living, like you talked about. But each individual will suffer, and we suffer collectively as well, because we have collective karma. We have American karma, sort of like American pie. And that karma is doing what to us now in the world? The actions we've taken in certain parts of the globe have created a new image of America. And if you're an American tourist in Europe, people may not be happy to see you anymore because we have American karma and we have American consequence. So each city has a karma, each state has a karma. I think California karma is pretty cool myself, better than Arizona karma. And then the countries, and then global karma, global suffering. How about the air? How about the glaciers melting? How about the lack of food for a whole bunch of people in the world, and we're taking our corn and making gasoline out of it, so we can drive, and they don't even have enough to eat, because we don't want to spend five bucks for a uh, gallon of gasoline. That's nothing. Most of the world is spending far more than that. So, yes, we have global suffering, we have individual suffering, and they're both connected. You can't be free from it. And one of the things about Buddhism, when you wake up to the fact that ultimately you're connected with everything all the time, you realize in Sudan, if there's one person dying of hunger, there is a part of you literally dying of hunger as well. That that suffering is felt by you at some level. Now, if you don't know them and aren't watching the news, it might just be a little uncomfortable twinge. And you think, well, I'm getting old, or I shouldn't throw that ball as fast as I did. But maybe it's that person dying, and they're connected to you, you know, and you're feeling it. And you don't know what it is, but you're actually feeling it. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So as you get more enlightened and more sensitive to the issues in the world, you start waking up to the fact that, yeah, we're all in this together. This is our team, you know? And our team, so far, isn't doing a very good job. We need to be better. Did that answer your question? Yeah. In a way? Okay, thanks. Well, that's it. That was my talk at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to download some free eBooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. I've just purchased a new domain name, dharmatube.org. That's d-h-a-r-m-a-t-u-b-e, dharmatube.org. And I'm posting flash video and flash audio. Have some up and running already? If you haven't been there yet, drop by and and see how it's going. That's dharmatube.org. Well, until the next podcast, until the next time, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.